Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope everyone had merry Armenian and Orthodox Christmases. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street rallied last week on hopes that future interest rates will be lower, although new jobs numbers in the United States softened slightly, uh, continuing to drive worries and debate about the nature of the upcoming recession and whether or not it will be a hard or soft landing. In Washington, California Republican Kevin McCarthy was elected as the 53rd Speaker of the House after 15 voting rounds and extraordinary promises, including to dial back defense spending. Boeing, Dassault, and Lockheed Martin all reported deliveries, and we'll have a recap of the annual Bank of America Merrill Lynch Defense and Aerospace Outlook Conference, on which we have been partnered for 15 very happy years. Joining us today to discuss all this and more, as they do every week, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent London equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Uh, and we are joined by one special guest today, Michael Herson uh, of American Defense International, one of Washington's top aerospace and defense lobbying firms. He's normally part uh, of the quad that composes our Washington uh, Roundtable, but he's joining us today because between the Washington Roundtable, when it didn't look like Kevin McCarthy, or was not as certain that Kevin McCarthy would become the nation's 53rd uh, House Speaker, uh, he has since made many more promises in order to get that job very early on Saturday morning, uh, our time. So, Michael, thanks very much for doing double duty, uh, and especially given that you've been awake for... Uh, <laughs> You know, you're still in recovery mode. Here it is on Sunday before the madness restarts tomorrow. No, glad to be here. Thank you. But before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, now sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and launching soon will be our new Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that will be co-hosted by our new contributing editor, J.J. Gertler, and yours truly. And HII and GE Marine are sponsoring our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium. Uh, Everybody, thanks very much again for joining us. Everybody uh, in the defense community is wondering what concessions Kevin McCarthy had to make. I mean, obviously, there were rumors going around that the manpower uh, subcommittee would go to um, Matt Gates, uh, one of uh, you know Kevin McCarthy's nemesis uh, among six members uh, in this entire process. But there were a lot of questions about the $75 billion uh, potential uh, House uh, version budget cut, right? Take uh, spending uh, to 2022 uh, budget levels. Walk us through what Kevin, what we know Kevin McCarthy has agreed to and what that pretends for national uh, security and U.S. defense spending. Sure. So let's you know, take one quick step back. You know, I, it was, you know, Mike Rogers, as we know, is going to be the new chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. And he had said prior to the November election, if the majority for Republicans is less than 20 seats, it's going to be an absolute disaster. And you know, he was exactly right. 
And, you know, imagine if we were in this position now, we hadn't passed the omnibus appropriations bill last year. And Senator Kramer, who's on the Armed Services Committee in the Senate, had actually also said something very prescient, that we needed to get that bill passed last year to relieve the House Republicans of the burden of governing. And the House Republicans, with their behavior uh, in their first week of being in charge, are proving uh, both of them uh, uh, correct. Um, and, you know, McCarthy had um, really done as much as he could to try and get the support of these folks long before, um, you know, uh, Tuesday, in the sense that he weighed into Liz Cheney's uh, primary and supported her opponent. Um, you know, he promised all kinds of investigations. He actively opposed the omnibus appropriations bill. But regardless, it took, uh, you know, they really thought they would get there after four days from the 14th ballot. And they thought they would get there. And a problem arose for all those who were watching late that night uh, where Gates tried to get them to delay until uh, the following Monday. But that was not an option because they were really trying to hold the group together because there were members that just wouldn't be there on Monday. Uh, one member, Roger Williams from Texas, his wife has a brain tumor and needs treatment. Uh, Wesley Hunt from Texas, his wife just gave birth and has been in and out of the hospital with complications. So they had to go forward on, on Friday night. And of course, as we saw, they did not get the votes. But uh, when the Republicans were dejected and voted for a motion to adjourn, McCarthy's whip team went to work right away. And Guy Reschenthal, who's the chief deputy whip, went over to Marjorie Taylor Greene and got her to get Donald Trump on the phone right away, which she did. And he spoke to all the outliers except for Matt Rosendale and really gave it to them and told them to cut it off. But he also, of course, took it from his perspective. He said, this chaos is making him him look bad. Uh, and then he, <laughs> so well, I'm glad yeah. to see that the former president's priorities are in the right place. <laughs> exactly. So it was at that point that Gates then um, went and withdrew his motion to support an adjournment said he'd get everybody in line, which he did, because none of them wanted to be seen as giving the final vote to McCarthy. Uh, so in the end, they agreed to all vote present. Uh, McCarthy won. And after this, on the 15th ballot, and this was the first ballot that not a single Republican uh, voted against him. But, you know, one, it, 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 it does kind of bring Trump back into the spotlight again, because Kevin McCarthy did thank Trump and also talked a lot about Trump's influence in his uh, thank you address to reporters after walking off the floor. Um, right. But at the same time, Kevin McCarthy did have to make an enormous amount of concessions. And I'll run through some of the highlights of what they are. And these are the only ones we know of. There may be a lot of concessions we don't know of. But I will say he did not agree to give Matt Gates the chairmanship of the military personnel subcommittee. I did confirm that yesterday, and that is, is not going to happen. But who knows what other concessions he, he, did, he did give. But here's a few highlights. I mean, one... And these will all impact how uh, the House of Representatives can function or if it really can function. And there are serious implications for the economy and for national security. One, uh, any one member uh, can call for a motion to vacate the chair, uh, the speaker's chair. And that was a red line that McCarthy said he would not cross. But now one member uh, can always threaten uh, to, for a vote of confidence in the speaker. Um, now, the Club for Growth, which is a very right wing leaning group, is very active in Republican primary, supporting very right wing candidates. They were opposed to McCarthy. So in order for McCarthy to get their support, he had to agree that his super PAC would no longer play in open Republican primaries and save seats. Uh, but the Club for Growth can't, which means in future years, we're going to see more right wing candidates win these safe open seats. It will change the dynamic of the House of Representatives on the Republican side even further. Um, he agreed so, to so, the, so this gives light to the notion that this is a, you know, a break or that Trump's influence reduces and the Republicans start running me because some in the Republican Party have been portraying this as, you know, th this is now the break and the party gets back to a little bit more normal. Uh, I, I, I agree. I, I think that we were seeing Trump's influence wane and we're looking at a break. 
But I think, you know, this is a group of folks that complains that the majority of the majority should be in charge, uh, except when it doesn't suit them. So now we really have 20 people ruling 222 people. And it does, I think, increase uh, possibly uh, the former president's influence. But that remains to be seen. Um, but right. So let's let's get back to uh, what, it, what it actually means for, for right. uh, spending and national security policy. Right. So, you know, McCarthy did agree that he would uh, allow a vote on a balanced budget amendment, uh, congressional term limits. Uh, he is putting three Freedom Caucus members on the House Rules Committee, and this Republicans only have nine, so they will control a third of that committee. Um, any um, uh, earmarks that come to the floor will have to be voted on uh, uh, individually, it looks like. Um, he's going to create uh, an investigative committee on the weaponization of government. They're going to restore what's called the Holman Rule, which will allow people to offer amendments to target individuals in the government, which Republicans will use to try and defund the special prosecutor investigating Trump or defund the uh, attorney general. Um, but, you know, let's focus. There's two key concessions here that focus on the economy and national security and then the ones that I find most alarming. So the first is any effort to raise the nation's debt ceiling must be paired with spending cuts. Right. And this really will be a major issue when it's time to raise the debt limit, because there's no way the Democrats in the Senate and the White House are going to go along with that. And believe me, this, the plan B right now, from what I understand, is to hope that the Democrats rescue them, that the Democrats would then uh, institute a, a side of discharge petition to force a vote. But they would then rely on at least six moderate Republicans, provided all the Democrats signed the discharge petition to force that to come to the floor. Very risky uh, proposition. Um, the second one uh, is capping discretionary spending for FY24 at FY22 levels, right, which threatens to cut uh, not only non-defense, but defense uh, by you know, 75 billion or more. Now, th they're being a little cute on this because they're saying, okay, we can cut the discretionary spending to 22 levels, but that's overall, right, which we call 302A. The, in right. the subcommittees get what's called the 302B allocation. They wouldn't abide by the FY22 302B allocations. They would abide by the FY22 302A allocations. So they are deluding themselves into thinking they could take additional funds away from the non-defense bills into the defense bill so defense doesn't get cut. But under that, those conditions, there is no way those non-defense bills ever pass, and there's no way that the defense bill passes. I don't even think Republicans could pass that defense bill with additional money because I think the Freedom Caucus would, be, would object to adding more money uh, for defense. And it puts us at serious risk of a year-long CR. And they even put another measure uh, into their agreement on CRs. That if we had to pass a stopgap funding bill, um, they also wanted to fund the government at 98% uh, of what it was uh, last year. Not 100%. It's got to be funded at 98%, which they believe will uh, trigger automatic spending cuts and incentivize Congress to finish its work on appropriations. So as far as I'm concerned, that to me is, is, is a you know, prognosis for chaos and, you know, year-long CRs. So what happens on the Senate side, right? I mean, obviously it takes two to tango in this. Uh, we already know where the administration's uh, going to be on this. Democrats, uh, neither in the House nor in the Senate are going to go along, you know, with, with sort of a charade that $75 billion is going to come from the discretionary spending elsewhere in the federal budget, right, in order to protect defense, uh, especially if McCarthy was dumb enough to expect, you know, to accept a deal on defense cuts or, or, or wider cuts that include defense. How does this play on, uh, on the Senate side? And at what point do we start to actually feel this? I mean, would it be basically later this year um, that you have an impact uh, on it when the debt ceiling discussions are done? I mean, how does this sort of play out in the interregnum, given that in the Senate, there's quite a lot of support for increasing defense spending? 
There is, as well as uh, non-defense domestic discretionary spending. I mean, look, I think it's a, the, the right question. I, the, the House Republicans have also said uh, that these they will not conference with the Senate unless the Senate agrees to also mark their bills to the FY22 numbers. Well, that's just not going to happen. Uh, now, look, the Senate is not blameless in the problems that we have right now because they have been unable to pass their appropriations bills off the floor. Uh, and they were even unable to pass an NDAA last year off the floor. I mean, that had to go straight to conference. So the Senate's got to get their calendar in line. They got to get their act together and they got to start moving bills as well. But uh, I think that the, the biggest problem that McCarthy is going to have is that uh, most of his members don't support this. They don't want these cuts. And, uh, you know, this will go into a budget resolution that will most likely fail. But then does Kevin go to Mike Rogers as he go to Kay Granger and Ken Calvert and say, look, I know the budget resolution didn't pass, but this is the deal I have. You have to mark up to these lower numbers. Um, and in that case, if they do, uh, those bills will never pass and they can never be conferenced. And it's a prescription for, um, you know, complete inaction. I mean, Kevin McCarthy said in his dear colleague letter on the rules package that was just sent out, you know, the simple fact is that Congress is broken and needs to change. You ain't seen nothing yet if you think Congress is broken. It was broken last year. It's going to be much worse uh, this year, in my opinion. Um, I, I don't uh, normally do this, but I want to just uh, go to Ron and Richard and see if they've got any uh, questions for you before you jump off and we get to the, the rest of our sort of former business-focused conversation. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, so, so, so Michael, um, maybe just, you know, and if we just pull back the aperture a little bit, I mean, from... From an investor perspective, if we're looking at, you know, we have a fiscal 23 budget, what could we really expect for fiscal 24? You know, when the when the market opens Monday, one of the questions that people are going to be asking is, what's, what does this mean for the fiscal 24, fiscal 25 budget? I mean, what, what is a, a reasonable probability case of where that falls out? Look, I think we have a long way to go, right? So I think it's really one of two scenarios. Uh, I think one would be a full year CR. Uh, at FY23 levels, um, or um, we see a bill by miraculously that is above um, the FY23 levels, but not to the degree that we've seen in the last two years. I mean, uh, I think they added uh, $37 billion to the president's budget request in FY22. We saw $45 billion added to the president's budget request in FY23. Um, you know, there is consensus in the House and the Senate, you know, for the most part, among Republicans and Democrats that we do need to be increasing defense spending and that the president's budgets that he submitted have not kept pace with inflation. Um, but it's to me, it's just going to be very, very difficult for them to get there uh, at the end of the year. Uh, but we have a long way to go. Uh, but I will say this. I mean, even before McCarthy, the vote on the speaker this week, I was talking to leadership staff last week. And they were already talking to me about year-long CRs and anomalies. And I looked at them like, how can you're giving up already and we haven't even started yet. So I, I just um, don't think there's a, a, the will among the leaders to make it done. I think there's the will among our defense leaders uh, up there. Uh, but uh, like I said, there's still a long way to go. But I would say that those are the two most likely scenarios. I don't see us getting a $75 billion cut in defense and that, and that bill ever passing the House and the Senate. Um, that's a uh, big relief. Richard uh, has a question uh, that uh, I th that we did discuss uh, at some length on on Friday's show. But go ahead, uh, Richard, and, and and whether or not uh, Michael, there's anything new on it. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, thanks very much, Michael, for bringing your uh, your your specialized skills to our uh, our podcast. Um, really interesting. The other area of concern, I think, for people on uh, the national security front is a potential threat to aid the Ukraine after the the current. Uh, year ends. Uh, has there been any discussion of that? Yes, uh, that's a really an excellent question. And I actually asked 
uh, one of the senior staff on the Armed Services Committee this question uh, over the weekend, because that was one of my concerns as to, you know, if we end up in year-long CR, what does that mean for aid to Ukraine? Uh, because Ukraine aid over the past uh, year has been passed in either individual packages or uh, as part of the omnibus at, at the end of the year. So if there is no, um, I don't see Ukraine aid right now being passed in the freestanding bill. I just think that's going to be very hard uh, to get done in the House. Um, you know, again, Kevin McCarthy's got this threat hanging over him with one member with a motion to vacate, even though McCarthy himself does support uh, aid to Ukraine. Uh, so I, I think that it would be part of the annual spending bills if they're able to get it done. And, and the Republicans in the House will demand offsets uh, for that spending. Uh, so they're going to have to figure out how that's going to work. Uh, I, I'm very concerned about it. I know that there's a majority of Republicans and Democrats in the House that want to see it done and a majority of Republicans and Democrats in the Senate that want to see it done. But right now we're in uncharted territories where you don't have a majority really ruling in the House. You really have 20 people um, calling the shots. Uh, and that, I think, puts Ukraine aid at risk. But I do believe still, and you, know, you have to ask me this question again in a couple of months, that there will be continued Ukraine aid this year. It's just going to be extremely painful to get there. And I will say, too, that, that the House Republicans are looking at Ukraine aid in, in two buckets, uh, the military aid and the non-military aid. Uh, so while there's more support for the military aid, there's less support for the non-military aid. And I can't specify what that is, but I know that several members I've spoken to uh, have come out of classified briefings on how the money's being spent, and they come out saying, wait, our money's being spent on that? And that is where I think we're going to see more uh, uh, reductions will be in the non-military aid. And hopefully our NATO and European allies will to take up the slack on that. And what are the things that fall into that? Wait a minute. That's in it, right? I mean, what's the complaint uh, about what's been included uh, in these aid packages that are of concern? Well, like I said, I mean, those, those briefings have been classified briefings. So I don't know. Uh, right. what, what that could be. I mean, it could be, uh, who knows with these guys, I mean, we could be providing money to keep their schools open and they might complain there's woke education going on in the schools. I mean, God only knows what these guys you know, are upset about, but it's definitely on the non-military side. And, and they do want more accountability on the military side as to where these weapons are going uh, and that so we can keep track of them. Michael, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Appreciate the double duty uh, on uh, coming on the program uh, back to back. Really appreciate it. Have a have as restful of a day as possible, as good of a week as possible, and look forward to having you back on again next Friday. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Ron and Richard. I want to go to you. Uh, you know, we just heard obviously from uh, Michael on all of these. I mean, just some thoughts about what this means, uh, right? More broadly for. Uh, you know, I mean, if we have a year long CR, there's going to be an impact certainly on services companies most immediately, uh, but also other uh, companies as well. Ryan, what's what's sort of your analysis of what Michael just had to tell us and what uh, the aggregate impact is going to be on the sector? Yeah, I guess first, it's a, it's a good thing that fiscal 23 got funded um, at, in the omnibus, omnibus bill at the end of the year. So it's not an immediate issue for fiscal 23. But as we think out to fiscal 24, which still is a while away. Um, you know, it, it's a concern. Um, you know, it, it, you know, from Michael's comments, it really does seem like, and this was also uh, expressed at the conference this past week, that the probability of a year-long CR in fiscal 24 is pretty high. Um, and if that's the case, right, under a CR, you have no new program starts, the companies that are most subject to that historically have been the services companies because the duration of their backlog programs tends to be shorter. Um, the companies with longer backlog programs, you know, ships being a good example, 
uh, tend to be not as impacted because of the duration of those programs. But um, I, I think if if indeed you know, we, we see this play out, there might be a little bit of a sigh of relief because on Friday afternoon, when these headlines started to break, um, there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a freak out, if I call it that, on the street about, you know, the, the thought of a $75 billion cut. Um, and it's clear, you know, from Michael's comments that that's, that's a non-starter, but still, uh, if it does play out to be a continuing resolution in 2024, I mean, that, that's, that's not optimal. Um, hopefully scenario two, which he mentioned where we could see um, some more upward um, pressure on defense spending ultimately plays out, but um, it's it's a long time between here and there, and it does look like it's going to be a pretty volatile process. Um, Sash, thanks for being patient. I'm going to get to you in just a second to be able to give us kind of a European view on this. But Richard, from your perspective, uh, impact of all of this as you can see it on uh, the sector from from your perspective. <laughs> Yeah, I thought uh, Michael's comments about Ukraine were really interesting. It does sound like, you know, even it, even though the $75 billion defense cut doesn't sound like it's a huge risk, it does sound like, well, Ukraine could be problematic, especially if um, there's no way to shunt cash between and, uh, and non-defense or the Europeans don't step up on the economic front or whatever else. But even bigger, you know, this news that uh, Kevin McCarthy has agreed to back Trump that in itself creates risk for Ukraine aid in the event uh, Trump is, is is elected, possibly as a consequence of the support. It could mean that the Republicans are going to abandon their momentary infatuation with Ron DeSantos and go back to Trump, in which case Ukraine aid is definitely a huge risk moving forward, as is U.S. support for the NATO alliance. So that to me was sort of the really interesting takeaway in his comment. Um, um, fortunately, uh, Congress uh, has passed uh, a measure that will make it uh, hard uh, for the United States uh, to exit uh, NATO. But uh, again, any, anything that can be done can be undone. Um, Sash, you've been very uh, patient uh, and heard a little bit about uh, the, the fiscal chaos and, and Michael's assertion uh, that, you know, if the United States does less for Ukraine, Europe would be able to step up. I know that there's a lot of news even on that front uh, as, as Europe does continue fairly um, sharply uh, to try to focus in increased sending. How, how does this spectacle sort of played in, in, in Europe? Uh, and, and, you know, do you think, how likely do you think it is that European nations sort of step in to fill uh, the gap that, you know, given, given the sheer magnitude of aid that the United States is providing? Not saying Europe isn't doing the same and Britain's done a heroic job, but the United States really is, has been quite instrumental in this. Your sense on, on both those questions? Uh, short answer first. Um, it hasn't been playing and Europe can't step up to the degree that the U.S. is at present. So I'll elaborate on that. Um, you know, it's a pretty established rule, particularly in diplomacy. Countries with dysfunctional political systems should not go around criticising other countries that appear to have dysfunctional political systems. That means you won't hear anything out of the UK, um, uh, period. Uh, and you won't hear anything out of, out of almost any other European country about, um, you know, what's going on, on in the US. It's your, it's your business, it's your uh, democracy. And, um, you know, there's plenty of European countries that have got fairly blemished records in terms of how they're own political systems have, have worked, my own being a dreadful case back in Q3. Um, so, you know, uh, crack on. Um, uh, I think as far as, I mean, can Europe step up to the plate in terms, in terms of economic aid? Yes, almost certainly. I think that that's something that European countries feel relatively comfortable about. But remember, that's a sweeping term for 
30 different countries, some of which are in uh, collective economic uh, setups, the EU internet, uh, in particular, um, but even within those, you know, the consensus is pretty weak, but, you know, the, the money is there and there is a realisation or a broad consensus economic, that, you know, Europe is going to have to help to rebuild Ukraine. But the, the money at the scale that the US has been providing is not there at present. And I think we'll take an immense amount of politicking and much more open discussion than there has been so far before Europe can actually replace the US or, you know, become the major supplier of either um, economic aid and or uh, arms to Ukraine. Arms to Ukraine, I don't think Europe's got the, has, has got the funding or the, uh, the depth yet. And I think um, that's probably something which is causing more concern in uh, European capitals. Um, the perception I get is that there's a feeling that uh, you know, Europe probably needs a year, 18 months to really get things going. The idea that this can be, you know, that the US could be, um, if not replaced, certainly you know, matched within a few quarters, that's for the birds. And that's, that's really bad news for Ukraine. But nobody should think that Europe will just sort of um, either individual, you know, individual countries or you know, the EU or the European Defence Agency, whatever else, will, will suddenly step up with tens of billions of aid, which is what the, the US has been providing. Now, there have been some interesting uh, examples this week of European countries. And European countries are dealing with Ukraine much more on a bilateral basis than on a um, multilateral basis at the moment. But your individual European countries are starting to provide uh, more of the aid that Ukraine wants. Ukraine has made armored fighting vehicles sort of totemic um, part of its, uh, of its requirement. Um, and, you know, we had reports this week that Germany is finally prepared to deliver some Marders, uh, which is an infantry fighting vehicle. It's old, it was revolutionary in its time. The ones they deliver will be probably pretty well upgraded, but uh, you know, it, it, it's massively better than uh, nothing. And that from Germany, I think is a, that's a huge change in uh, German policy. France is going to deliver some AMX-10 um, armored cars. It's a pretty powerful armored car. It's got a halfway decent gun on it. Um, uh, the French media has been spinning this. And we have to assume that the Elysee has been spinning this as being a tank. It's not a tank. That's well, it, it does exactly. have a, it has a 105 it's millimeter. It's got a, a great medium, 105 it's got millimeter a, gun on it. No, no, it's got a medium pressure 105 millimeter. It's it's good, but it's a heavy armored car. It ain't a tank. Um, however, you know, every bit helps. And uh, combined with the you know US decision to deliver uh, Bradley fighting vehicles as well, the Ukrainians are starting to get heavy armor from the West rather than former Russian heavy armor. Um, but it's still coming in in dribs and drabs. You know, most of these deliveries are, you know, at best a regiment's worth at a time when Ukraine probably wants a division's worth at a time. Um, so I, you know, I, I would see this as, as it's, not, it's not too little too late, but it's certainly too little uh, at the moment. Um, and were USAID to um, come to a, a sort of screaming halt, that would create real problems for Ukraine. And I think that would put immense political pressure on Europe and European countries aren't very good at coping with that and the EU is even less good at coping with that. Um, let me um, just ask uh, one more question. In, in the event of a year-long continuing resolution, for example, where the Pentagon can't do uh, any uh, new starts, there is a tendency of the United States uh, to, to have a very America-centric view of this, whereas 
Um, it, it, you know, anything with the American defense ecosystem has a tendency of impacting everybody else on the planet as well. We have a tendency of thinking the Budget Control Act was just problematic on our side of the Atlantic. What are some of the repercussions uh, that will be felt in Europe uh, if the United States, um, you know, can't get to normal uh, standard uh, funding, um, you know, or then in the worst case, if there are major budget uh, you know, uh, uh, perturbations uh, on our side of the ocean. Continuing resolutions always affect European countries, companies with significant uh, US presence. That more than anything else. That tends to mean, in the first and foremost, UK companies, VA Systems, um, Rolls-Royce, uh, Kemmering, all have, you know, substantial US uh, activities, and they would tend to see those effectively stall, or probably worse for uh, for a year or so, but then it has a bit of a knock on Leonardo. Uh, Leonardo's DRF business would would certainly be affected as well. Uh, kinetic, um, they'd, they'd be the ones that I would worry about. Um, but you know, beyond that, anybody who's hoping to sell into the US and you know countries like Saab, uh, companies like Saab and Thales are, are are you know in in that category. You know, we'll see those expectations disappointed. But that's that's relatively small order stuff for them. The companies that have got, for example, you know, BE Systems, uh, well over a third, probably 40% of the, the company's entire businesses in the States, you would see that uh, probably stall. Uh, and that would, that would not be good. That would, that would not the stuffing out of the, the earnings stories for some of these defense companies, which, which has been, you know, pretty positive. And I don't think see any element of Ukrainian-related uh, demand as compensating for that. Ron, um, I just want to go to you uh, real quick before I go uh, back uh, to Sash, and then we get to a little bit of regular order because there's a lot that we need to cover. What was the week on uh, week like uh, on the market last week, and what were the big drivers? Or I mean, you mentioned at the end of the week there was some stress. Market overall did end up uh, up. Um, there were employment concerns. There were interest rate concerns. These are sort of fairly standard. What were some of the other events, and how did the group uh, perform? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at the market, the mark, the, the S and P ended the week up uh, a percent and a half. Um, uh, the real champ of the week was Boeing. Boeing shares were up almost twelve percent. Uh, defense got hit. Northrop was down about four and a half. Lockheed was down almost three. Uh, and then if you look across the the other stocks in our coverage, uh, you know, Raytheon was up about a percent and a half. Transdyne was up three percent. Uh, Embraer's, the U.S. ADRs were up about four and a half percent. Uh, Spirit Aerosystems was up almost 10%. Um, so it was it, it, it kind of biased. I mean, it was clearly commercial aerospace did better than um, uh, than defense. And then within commercial aerospace, the, the OE names did better. Uh, and, and I think one of the big drivers for that was particularly on Boeing. Um, they delivered a bunch of 737s uh, in the last month of the year. And uh, I think that... Um, you know, got everybody all bowled up on Boeing. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I might also add that it was a shortened trading week break because we weren't trading on Monday. Uh, and a lot of people were still out of the office. So this upcoming week will be some of the real kind of real start of the year kind of effectively. Um, Brent, Brent crude was uh, just under 80 bucks. WTI was about 73. They've been kind of trending in that range. Uh, the 10-year yield was at 3.6%, which has been trending down a little bit. Uh, the VIX index, uh, you know, the measurement of volatility um, has been, you know, in this range between call it 20 and say 35 and it's at 21. So it was at the lower end of that range. Um, so it, the market kind of feels what they would, you know, call in my world kind of risk on at the moment. 
Um, so, so we'll see what happens. Um, the SPAC index, uh, which is, you know, SPACs tend to be pretty um, risk sensitive. Uh, it was up a little bit on the week, but the SPAC index has uh, effectively been, been flat. Um, Sash, uh, a little bit of the drivers uh, on the week. I mean, uh, I think Airbus is reporting next week. We talked last week. Uh, your elves, uh, Ron, had said uh, that uh, you know that they were going to have very positive numbers, and alas, we did see some positive numbers from the company. Uh, talk to us about the week in Europe, uh, the drivers, how the group performed, uh, and maybe we can talk also a little bit about what expectations are uh, uh, on what we're going to see from Airbus. Yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, um, it would look. It, it was a very, very light trading week. Um, uh, a lot of people were uh, not in the office. It was bank holidays, twelfth um, night on Friday, uh, and so I wouldn't put a lot of it in. But actually, European aerospace and defence stocks had a really good week. Average up three, three percent plus. Civil stocks up seven. Defence stocks up about two, um, and that you know seven plays two. That exactly highlights Ron's point about it just being a, uh, a risk-on week. If you're risk-on, you're economically positive, you buy civil aerospace. If you're risk-off, you think that the world's going to hell in a handcart or somewhere like that, defence stocks may be more defensive. What were the standouts? Um, uh, Ryan Mittal and Rolls-Royce. And actually, this is, you know, this rather uh, defeats my, my previous point. But, you know, Ryan Mittal was up nearly 12%, although they um, had a sort of pre-announcement said they wouldn't wouldn't do quite had, or had not recorded quite as many sales in 2022 due to their automotive business having a problem thing is most investors don't don't buy Ryan myself their automotive business so that one just went straight over people's heads but Rolls-Royce up uh, uh 11% um investors starting to get more optimistic about Chinese reopening Rolls-Royce is the play on China it's got a um you know several hundred uh A330s in, uh, in service or actually not in service with Chinese airlines at the moment. Um, and as those start to, uh, uh, you know, as, as those start to be flown both uh, more for short haul, but also for uh, medium and long haul, that should generate uh, a lot of uh, service revenues for roles. So that was a very, very, uh, that was probably the strongest single performer. But then actually the other, you know, of interest, uh, the other big performer was Hensolt, the German defense electronics company. Um, that's a pretty liquid stock, though. That was up six percent. I wouldn't, uh, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that um, press is a great deal, except that if Germany is starting to uh, send MARDA infantry fighting vehicles to Ukraine, what next? Probably more air defense systems. Um, Richard, uh, I want to bring you in. You you heard um, uh, Sash talk a little bit about uh, China uh, and China impact. Obviously, the world is looking at what COVID numbers are going to look like, and uh, you know how. Um, you know, what that's going to mean uh, economically, even though the Chinese are fairly bullish that, you know, as we as we heard at the um, uh, at the conference, you know, they'll lose a million, million and a half people, but it'll be a strong, uh, strong year, uh, ultimately, right? I mean, the unpleasantness will be over with, and it's a very large country. Uh, you know, your your sense on uh, where we're going uh, with air travel, uh, and what China is going to mean, and and feel free to comment on anything else that's been said so far as well, because you've been very patient. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, China, of course, is the missing piece in the global air travel recovery because of the uh, the lockdown. And now that there is no lockdown, but there is COVID, we don't really know. 
I mean, you know, everyone is attaching rules and restrictions for understandable reasons to international China travel, but strangely, the Chinese are not. They're just saying, okay, <laughs> you know, end of problem. Um, yes, a million, a million and a half of you may die, but uh, oh well, them's the breaks. We don't know how this is playing out. My feeling is that it it will possibly accelerate the recovery a little bit, maybe towards 2024 when things clear up a bit. Um, it was certainly an interesting development. The one thing it did do was sort of, I think, kind of de-risk the broader concern that maybe China was going dark in a lot of other ways other than the pandemic. In other words, they were sort of turning their back on global trade, market economy, air travel. Some of that might still be true, but at least it showed a willingness to, you know, let people fly again and and and, and whatever else. So from that standpoint, it was it was kind of welcome in an unstable sort of way. Um, you know, I it it's been a really interesting week from the standpoint of deliveries, um, rather than any other news. As uh, as of course Ron and Sash have said, it's uh, perhaps not the the most news rich week. But in terms of deliveries, it was certainly interesting. And what did you make of uh, right? I mean, we were in New York when Dassault uh, reported. Um, you know your your take on that, and 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 you know whoever else wants to weigh in on that, and and what it tells us. Yeah, you know, most people basically were kind of disappointing. Airbus, of course, prepped us for the disappointment back a few weeks ago when they said they wouldn't be making 700 deliveries. Um, you know, but they did okay. Boeing slightly, slightly, slightly positively surprised, slightly. Um, Lockheed Martin disappointed. You know, they were going to do 148 minimum and 141 because of the flight test haul. Uh, Dassault was going to do 35 Falcon jets. They disappointed mostly at 13. They actually squeezed in a 14th Rafale. Uh, so it wasn't a complete disappointment. But in general, you know, we're started, starting to do the preliminary numbers. And I presented those at uh, the B of A conference, courtesy of Ron, this week. And boy, this is an unusually disappointing recovery. You know, you add it all up, it looks like the industry expanded, you know, in a year of tremendous recovery, you know, fantastic markets for the most part, it expanded by 10.9%. <laughs> that is really anemic. Um, and not only that, but a lot of those numbers were, or a lot of the numbers behind those numbers were kind of inflated by delivery of existing jets, particularly 787 and 737 MAX. So for example, the single aisle market uh, expanded by 18%. A lot of that was pre, pre-built maxes. So the broader industrial base didn't benefit from that in- uptick. And twin aisles expanded by 15.9%. But again, a lot of that was, uh, or some of that was 787s that had already been built. So this is sort of thanks to the supply chain, thanks to broader production concerns. This is a, uh, a, a really weak recovery so far. We're hoping for better numbers, of course, next year, but we'll see what the supply chain gods uh, give us to work with. Ron, you want to weigh in on, on that and Sash? Uh, anything you want to add uh, traffic-wise, Dassault-wise, uh, and anything else-wise before we go for a recap of the conference? And Sash, I want to uh, ask you a little bit about where you think we are going on the AUKUS uh, agreement, the Australia-UK-US uh, agreement to furnish submarines uh, for uh, the uh, Royal Australian Navy, um, given some of the concerns we've heard from senior political leaders uh, in the United States about you know, the danger of satisfying um, Australia's needs 
at the expense or, or rather warning against satisfying Australia's needs uh, at, the, at the risk of satisfying the U.S. Navy's needs. But, but Ron uh, and, uh, and Sash, if you guys have anything you guys want to add on, 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 all the, on, on what Richard had to say. Yeah, I mean, I think Richard was you know, on point 100%. I mean, the, the, the recovery um, has been adept, uh, at, at best uh, pretty tepid. And a lot of that just has to do with supply chain constraints. And one of the points that Richard made actually at the conference, uh, and I think right on, is it's it's not a, a demand issue, it's a supply issue. Uh, and we're expecting those issues to continue into 23 and hopefully be resolved at some point in 24. A lot of that has to do with labor, labor and other things. But until that sorts itself out, uh, I would expect uh, the, the recovery uh, to continue, but uh, maybe be behind what we would have otherwise hoped it to be. Uh, and then another interesting question ultimately becomes when you start looking at uh, the suppliers that make parts for aircraft engines, would they rather ship parts into the aftermarket or to the OEs in a constrained environment? And I think the uh, the ringing answer is they'd rather ship them into the aftermarket than to the OEs because they actually make money there. So so we'll see how that all plays out. But um, you know, for for the upcoming year, you know, the jury between the debate, you know, do I want to, to be exposed to the OEM market or the aftermarket? I think that's still open. Um, but uh, you know, they'll both continue to recover this year, uh, particularly as Chinese traffic picks up. Sash. Yeah, I, I've got nothing to add on um, Dasso. I think uh, Richard absolutely uh, got that um, uh, perfectly. Airbus, I think, is very interesting. Um, uh, th- there's a report on Reuters. Reuters are, are you know, very, very good at, at their coverage of Airbus and uh, saying that Airbus um, delivered 663 uh, aircraft uh, last year. Um, remember, uh, in July of last year, Airbus cut their delivery forecast from 720 to around 700. Um, and, uh, you know, they were they clearly warned that they would be below 700 uh, in their December trading statement. The figure they used, they, the statement they used then was the final figure is not expected to fall materially short of the quotes unquote around 700 delivery target. Well, I'm very sorry, 663 is materially short of around 700, it's about 5% short. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very interested that they should have such a shortfall. Basically, 20, they, they, they decide or they fail to deliver about 25 aircraft at the very end of December, 20, uh, December. And if you compare it with Boeing, where you know Ron's Elves reported Boeing worked flat out in the last couple of weeks of December to get aircraft out of the door. Airbus, I think, pretty much gave up, um, not because of any... Uh, particular competition with Boeing, but I think because they realize if you have supply chain problems, if you have quality problems, if you are upsetting your customers by delivering aircraft that have got so many identified faults in them that it then takes a few more weeks to rectify, don't bother to mess things up at the end of the year. Take your time in January, even February, and, uh, and get it right. So conclusions probably Airbus will have a slightly better first quarter and they not, normally first quarter is incredibly weak uh, for Airbus. But it sounds to me as if they are going to be very cautious about their guidance for the, uh, for the whole of 2023, um, probably slightly more front-end weighted than they otherwise would have been because the production chain problems, you know, of a, a variety of things, not just engines, uh, interiors as well, are, you know, less tractable than they hoped even a month ago. 
Uh, Sash, it, it also reminds me, Brian, I mean, we were talking about Ukraine. There are there were some armaments related developments in, in, in Europe as well. Give us a, a quick uh, update on that. Yeah, um, t- you know, two interesting uh, orders um, the week just passed. First of all, Poland exercised its uh, option for another um, 100 plus uh, M1 Abrams tanks from, from the US coming out of stock, being refurbished, probably not to A3 SCP standard, but you know, potentially pretty close. Um, I mean, Poland is the big buyer of uh, land forces equipment at the moment. It helps that they don't, in budget terms, that they don't have a Navy uh, to speak of, and therefore their spending is much more focused on land forces. Clearly, they've got the, the, the challenge as well that Poland is on the Sawalki Gap, which is the major area of weakness for uh, NATO, because that's the gap between Poland and the Baltic states, and Belarus sits uh, you know, right opposite it. Um, you know, it really reminds you quite how determined the Poles seem to be to build up their uh, army. Um, the other order that I thought was very, very interesting was that Hungary uh, has ordered a, um, a complete explosives factory and then uh, munitions set up from Rheinmetall. So this is a turnkey uh, package, which Rheinmetall will then uh, end up co-running but to, not just to produce the, the basic explosives, RDX uh, and HMX, but then to uh, produce uh, shells and uh, other munitions as well. Um, this is very, very interesting in terms of just the broader European rearmament. There are, there are not enough factories that can produce high quantities of shells. And where there are, they don't have enough explosives put in. Them. This is you know, one of those small indicators that countries recognize that's a strategic weakness and are starting to turn things around. Here's the caveat, it'll take three to four years for this whole thing to come through. You, you cannot just say, we want a, a, an explosives factory and expect it to be operational by the end of the year. No way. Uh, Sash, um, before we get to sort of a recap of the B of A uh, uh, conference, uh, Sash, you know, and, and Ron, I want to get your sense on this uh, as well. Uh, on some of the language, or maybe let me have you start us off and then come back to Sash on the implications of the AUKUS deal. Uh, we heard from uh, the chairman of the Senate Armed uh, Services uh, Committee, Jack Reed uh, of Rhode Island, a uh, Democrat from Rhode Island who has a very important submarine producing uh, component in his uh, state, and the former ranking member, Jim Inhofe uh, of Oklahoma, uh, who retired, expressing concern that nothing about AUKUS should derail the U.S. Navy's drive to get two attack submarines a year and one ballistic missile submarine a year. Um, The AUKUS committee, I think in March, is supposed to uh, report out their recommendations on how to satisfy uh, uh, Australia's uh, need uh, or desire for nuclear attack submarines. The trouble is British industry uh, is wrapping up astute and doesn't have any spare reactors. So we have to wait for the PWR pressurized water three reactor to come. Right, so this has to be an all new design. Uh, or it has to be an American design, burdening an American industrial base that's at 1.6 to 1.8 submarines a year now. What's your sense on where this is going and what you're hearing from investors uh, and companies? And Sash, want to get your take on what the what the impact here is as well. I think this was, you know, Scott Morrison wanted to turn the page, show himself to be, you know, was frustrated with France, but also. Um, other messaging, Boris Johnson wanted to stick it to the French. The Americans wanted to turn the page from Afghanistan while uh, also looking like, hey, 
this is something important and and clearly bringing these three countries together is important but now everybody's sort of struggling to figure out how to make this happen ron your sense and and sash yours and then richard you can lead us off on some b of a takeaways in a moment go ahead yeah so so vago i I think when you think about it from an investor perspective the questions they ask are you know what could be the upside here that sort of thing i don't think anybody has it built into their models today um, it's just something that could be kind of in the terminal value of, of evaluation that, that could provide upside. So be it that you're 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 hearing um, this this kind of talk today and concern over the industrial base. I don't think that surprises anybody. And I don't think it's that big a disappointment to investors because nobody's really counting on it in, in what they would see as an investable horizon over the next couple of years. Sash, um, you know, any because increasingly folks are suggesting, hey, you know, we should get the Japanese in on this. Uh, maybe the French can provide a nuclear reactor. The uh, Japanese have capacity. Then AUKUS gets the French and the Australians in it as well, five very important Pacific powers. I mean, and and then folks ask, okay, well, what does UK then get left with it, right? I mean, how, do, how are you perceiving this? What are your sources telling you about where we sort of end up? Because the whole idea was to do, to equip Australia with this capability quickly, you know, at, at, at a speed of relevance as opposed to sometime in 2040. Look, anybody who tells you you can take a French reactor, put it into a Japanese sub or something, they shouldn't be allowed out on the streets alone. I, that is, you know, it, that, that's the sort of really dangerous, it's the equivalent of big hand, small map. Um, that's uh, very, very dangerous sort of en- uh, engineering talk. Um, that's inconceivable. Reactors are tailored for the, for the boat they go into, period. You never shift, you know, move them across without an enormous level of engineering change. The Japanese bid for the Australian submarine requirement. Um, they bid a very, very capable submarine design with a uh, an incredibly immature uh, industrial package and political industrial package. It was never a flyer for, or, or a sailor for, for um, the Australians because they could not work out how the submarines and the capability to maintain them was going to be transferred to Australia. Has anything changed since then? No, not a lot. I think this comes down to, um, understandable US concerns that you're not building enough submarines. But I have to say, to think that transferring submarine capability to Australia is not as a national benefit, one of the highest, most important things you can do shows an astonishing level of myopia. Just saying, we, we need submarines for the, uh, for, for the US Navy and our most important ally in the Pacific or second most important ally in the Pacific shouldn't have them as a consequence. I, I, that, that's quite sad, I think. Um, it's very interesting talking to companies, officials in the UK about AUKUS, how astonishingly tight-lipped uh, they all are. I think that's actually to their credit, frankly. Um, very few people know how the AUKUS uh, negotiations are going. They tend to be at a very elevated level in each company, and they ain't talking. Good for them. Um, there have been, uh, you know, there have been suggestions, but these are I'm not necessarily well sourced, that in extremists, the UK would be prepared to uh, um, transfer the seventh astute boat direct to Australia uh, and then build another one thereafter. We would clearly need to build a, a new PWR for that, a uh, reactor for that. Um, and that would take probably about five years, but that, that might well work. Um, uh, or even that we uh, transfer the last of the, um, the Trafalgar attack boats. I'm not sure I'd want a, a heavily used uh, Trafalgar boat, but uh, Australian sailors are now training and operating on the UK's, you know, warringly small 
attack submarine fleets. So that's a possibility. I think I do not think the UK would worry about the um, the you know the build requirement or even the UK submarine uh, fleet size if we perceive that the Australians are you know one of our most important allies in the Pacific really needed at least one boat and you know the promise thereafter of uh, greater you know uh, more boats and the transfer of industrial capability. Um, I uh, will. Uh, I, I'm one of the people who says you could put a French uh, reactor on it. The beam of the two submarines are identical at 29 feet, uh, and the displacement is very, very similar uh, as well. Although I take, uh, I, I take your point. Um, Marco, I'm never going to let you touch a car that I own. Uh, that's okay. I'm very good at fixing cars. Again, I mean, I'm I'm sort of interested in whether there are novel uh, solutions to doing this with the nation. Um, it's a the British and the American reactors are highly enriched, very very sophisticated, and extremely high performance. It's not that the French aren't, but the French have a much more modular concept, uh, and again, a commercial uh, sustainment and support. And their reactor now is in series production or is in production in order to satisfy the Barracuda. And I wanted to see whether or not there's a little more flexibility there. I'm just thinning in into an look, innovative, it, it, innovative solution. If the, if the Australians wanted that, they would have bought the Barracuda as it was. They uh, engine, engineered the reactors out of the Barracuda for the short fin uh, uh, for the attack class. Um, you know, that, that was original sin, arguably. And 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 France did not want to, you know, France has very is very abides very closely to non-proliferation. It didn't want to export that technology either, uh, any more than the Australians at the time wanted it as well. Anyway, we're we're out of time on this segment. Really quick, Richard, uh, lead us off, and and Ron, uh, another terrific uh, conference. We're honored to have been part of it uh, since its inception in two thousand eight. Um, tremendous uh, discussions, I have to say, uh, Ron. One of the high uh, high points. Uh, definitely was uh, hearing uh, from uh, Kyle Clark of uh, Beta Technologies and the incredible work the small South Burlington company uh, is doing up in uh, Vermont. Um, you know, Harvard grad, aviator, test pilot, Washington Capitals <laughs> hockey player, uh, and actually doing the hard lifting uh, when it when it comes to uh, EV tall. Uh, airplane with their Aaliyah um, setting a record for for distance. But uh, really quickly, Richard, what were some of the things that jumped out uh, over uh, two action-packed days covering uh, defense, commercial aerospace, uh, as well as space? Yeah, it was really uh, quite something. So uh, congratulations, Ron, to you and your team. It was uh, it, it was a very content-rich, you know, 48 hours. Yeah, I think if I had to put it down to five things, one global instability uh, and a lot of the global chaos, of course, um, something we see in the headlines every day, Russia and China being very good for defense spending in the long run, wrong run. But having said that, uh, point number two, a lot of uncertainty about platforms, uh, particularly there were a lot of concerns about uh, F-35 production output um, relative to NGAD and relative to other requirements, uh, obviously nuclear recapitalization being high on that list. Um, chaos in the supply chains. I think that was <laughs> across the theme, you know, take another 12 to 24 months with another round of uh, Inflation likely at risk to you know to the whole thing. Uh, the supply chain moving from just in time to just in case. That's probably a major secular shift that'll be with us for some time. Bigger inventories with uh, an appropriate impact. Um, airlines. Everyone seemed to be in broad agreement that 
everything is kind of converging on narrow bodies, away from wide bodies and away from regional jets, but towards large single aisles. And that, of course, has a big impact on Boeing. And then uh, space. Wow, I didn't realize that there was such an upward angle of, uh, of launches and payloads. And uh, it's, it's really quite something, I guess, given the yeah, the seemingly endless reconnaissance requirements of for national security and for you know for other purposes in the civil economy, um, it it shouldn't surprise me. But nevertheless, seeing it all put together was uh, was really quite fascinating. So uh, a chaotic world, both on the supply side and the demand side, um, and also some very big growing numbers for pretty much every sector of the A and D industry. Ron, I agree with pretty much everything Richard said. I, I would say. A couple comments when you just look over the history of the conference. If you if you think about when we first started at Vago, um, China at that point wasn't seen in the light it is seen today. Um, you know, kind of across the conference, it's it, you know, uh, China isn't seen as just a, a near peer threat, but maybe something more o- ominous. Um, and that's that's definitely changed over time. I think there was a lot of discussion about how innovation is key to the future of the Department of Defense and how you get there. I mean, it's it's interesting that um, that's been a you know since I've been an analyst, that's been a, a point of contention with the DoD that you know the, the industry is not innovative enough and in how to get there. So so we'll see. Um, I think you know uh, very. Uh, prescient, there was commentary at the conference about, you know, we could be in a full year CR uh, coming up. So I think that was probably probably right on. Uh, and then then on the commercial uh, aerospace side, yeah, I, I think probably one of the, the more meaningful things is this the just in, just in time shifting to just in case. I mean, it seems like that's something very secular for a while um, uh, until it's not, I suppose. Uh, and then finally, um, to to uh, reiterate the marks you made at the top of the segment. Uh, I thought you know the Beta uh, founder and CEO Kyle Clark did a, did a fantastic job presenting um, not just what they're doing at Beta, but you know the the, the promise potentially of electric flight, particularly applied to uh, in cargo markets and the way they're thinking about it. Uh, so it was a, a lot of fun to hear from uh, from him. Uh, I th- I thought it was terrific that you know there are folks. You know, he was saying, hey, we've got to get this electric park done uh, before we get to hybrid, right? And what they're doing on inverters. I mean, it, it's, you know, I mean, un- unfortunately, there is a little bit of uh, theater in this segment, as we've discussed uh, often. Uh, and uh, it's just interesting to me how somebody has uh, such a methodical bread and butter uh, focus on it. So it was really tremendous to see. You know, they, they, they might not make it. But they're certainly going to define the industry and the technology they're developing, which I think is is just terrific. Yeah, if I could just add to that, if you don't mind, the thing that really hit me about Kyle's presentation is he's the per- first person to reconcile the two, you know, competing business models. One, of course, is the pursuit of markets, and the other is the classic: don't just pursue markets. You know, don't don't pan for gold. Sell blue jeans and buckets to the people panning for gold. It was a it was a sort of fascinating combination of the two and the markets he's pursuing are the far more sensible and established markets rather than the uh, crazy, let's replace those old crowded subways with <laughs> aerial aerial, you know, mass transit. Uh, so it all seemed very smart and sensible to me too. Guys, uh, thanks so very much. Uh, real pleasure uh, as always. Uh, hope you guys have a great day, great week. Look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much.